But I still would like to see how well this vaccine prevents severe disease, uh, how this uh, vaccine prevents infection, uh, how it's going to work in different uh, age groups. Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 10th November, as COVID-19 surges across the Northern Hemisphere and stock markets surge at hopes for a vaccine raised in a company press release. Today on the line, I have our two regular contributors, Nisri Nalwan. Hello, I'm Nisri Nalwan, um, University of Southampton Public Health. And Helen Salisbury. Hi, I'm Helen, GP in Oxford. Matt Morgan couldn't join us this week, so we we're really delighted to have in his stead Alison Pittard. Hi, I'm Alison Pittard. I'm Dean of the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, and I work an intensivist, intensivist in Leeds. And our expert guest this week is Muge Chevik. Hello, many thanks for having me. I'm uh, Muge Chevik. I'm an infectious diseases clinician and academic, currently based at uh, University of St Andrews. Wonderful, up in Scotland, so that's great to have, have you with us, Muge. Um, Muge, can I just start with you, because you and some colleagues have written a wonderful um, education article in the BMJ just a week or two ago on the virology, transmission and pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and in it, you make the point that symptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission is more likely to be important in this than, than asymptomatic transmission. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, especially in light of the decision to do mass testing in Liverpool and what, what you think that mass testing is intended to achieve. Thank you so much. I think this is an important uh, discussion point, um, but I think it might be important to start with defining what we mean by asymptomatic transmission. Asymptomatic transmission refers to transmission events generated from cases with no symptoms whatsoever throughout the infection, whereas pre-symptomatic transmission means transmission events that occur before symptom onset. Of course, I think everyone starts with an asymptomatic infection, but then some go on to develop symptoms. So the contribution of asymptomatic infection to transmission will depend on the proportion of infections that are asymptomatic, which may be answered by the mass tes testing in Liverpool. Uh, the second part is the relative degree of infectiousness, which I will come into. And three is the relative number of contacts of asymptomatic cases. So, um, I mean, international data so far suggests that the percentage of asymptomatic infections, uh, I mean, those basically completely stay free of symptoms, are about 20%. So approximately one in five individuals remain uh, completely asymptomatic. So majority go on to develop symptoms. Uh, the other important aspect, as I said, how infectious asymptomatic individuals are compared to symptomatic and pre-symptomatic individuals. And we know from some outbreak investigations, asymptomatic in individuals can definitely transmit the infection. But some data suggests that their infectiousness seems to be limited. And there are two systematic reviews so far in the literature that combines all the data uh, coming from you know, other countries. And that should suggest that asymptomatic in individuals are approximately one third as infectious compared to those with symptoms. 
I guess the main argument would be the relative number of contacts, because, you know, when someone feels absolutely normal, they may not self-isolate and they may have more contacts than symptomatic cases. Uh, so that's, that's an important point. We still probably don't know that. But um, I think the distinction is important. That's the reason we emphasize it in the BMJ article. Some argue that it doesn't matter if people go on to develop symptoms. Um, as we know, people can transmit while they have no symptoms whatsoever. But while this is true, uh, from a public health perspective, this distinction is important because if majority of patients will go on to develop symptoms, symptom onset could be used as a starting point to recall contacts. Otherwise, for asymptomatic cases, we would not know when the infection started, who are the high-risk contacts. So I guess these findings indicate the importance of identifying and isolating symptomatic cases as a priority. But I guess like we know that uh, pre-symptomatic cases also contribute and asymptomatic spread also contribute but pro probably to a lesser extent. Um, I mean, in, in, in light of the uh, Liverpool plans or Liverpool what's happening now, uh, it has always seemed to me that it's the contact tracing that has to be the key element of this, which is where certainly in the UK we seem to be failing. Nizreen, what's your view about what's going on in Liverpool and what, what, it, what it might achieve and what the problems with it might be? Well, I think, the, in principle, um, um, it's brilliant to test more, to find more cases, and that's what we in public health have been pushing for all along. I think the issues that need further discussion, um, um, because we've heard a lot about the test itself, but I think it's about, it's about really what happens when you test, after you test, or if you don't test, um, that probably needs more discussion um, in the public domain. You know, that, that because... Uh, you know, the potential for isolation with a positive test, particularly if we're not talking about tests, um, you, know, you know, variable inaccuracy, that's a big deal for people. And it's a big deal for people who are disadvantaged um, in society, much more than people who are, you know, say, have more secure job, have help, have kind of a very good, um, you know, so social support system. Um, and I think more discussion should be about um, you know, what happens um, and, and people should be very clear about the consequences of isolation. There are implications for loss of income, there are implications for loss of education, for loss of social support, um, and, you know, practical implications, shopping, etc. Uh, all of these things really need to be out there and discussed um, even more than the testing itself. Uh, from a public health point of view, otherwise the technology itself will not be effective if we don't have a holistic approach and and have all of these um, concerns or issues really addressed and clear. Uh, I think we need to remember testing is not an intervention, as you know Nisreen clearly mentioned. Testing and diagnosis will you know only have as much public health clinical impact as they facilitate decreasing onward transmission. And for respiratory infections, how will a diagnosis help if your living situation does not allow for isolation, work does not provide paid or sick leave, family is dependent on your income? Um, so I guess like we need to think about all these structural aspects, how we could provide the support uh, to, you know, aid the diagnosis and further 
to decrease the onward transmission. I think if these are not available, in a way, this mass testing, to me, serves like an epidemiological kind of prevalence and analysis purposes. Um, and the other, I think, downside of mass testing is that many people who receive a negative test might feel confident to meet others. But as we already know, negative test is not all clear. Um, you know, people generally can start being infectious two days before uh, showing symptoms during that pre-symptomatic phase. But early in the infection, a person who's incubating the virus is more likely to test negative. So, um, I mean, during this, you know, mass testing, there may be some people who have the infection, but will be tested negative. So it's also um, uh, something to think about. Alison. I think um, staff testing is, is really important because certainly in secondary care, both in the first wave and, and currently, we've seen a huge impact on on sort of frontline healthcare workers who have had to isolate because of being in contact with either a, somebody with symptoms who's tested positive or um, an asymptomatic person. And, and so you know, staff going off, having to isolate, they're not sick not only does that decimate the workforce, which makes it more difficult for us to deliver our, our care, but also frustration for the, the staff themselves and their own health and well-being. Because obviously you, you, you train to deliver healthcare, and if you can't be there and you feel well enough to do it, um, you, you may not go on to, to get COVID, but the psychological impact of that is really important. Now, there are staff who don't want to be tested, and, and that's fine. But I think for the majority of people, being able to continue to deliver uh, the, the, what you've been trained to do is, is massive, and that shouldn't be underestimated. Helen? I'm just really interested in time frames, uh, Mugabe, because you talked about the infectious time being maybe in the pre-symptomatic phase and the early symptomatic phase. Um, and we know that most people, once they get a symptom, they don't necessarily manage to get a test immediately. It may take a little while to, to get it organised, to find a slot to have it. I think that is improving from what I hear. But what isn't improving is the time to get the results. So the government's figures uh, that were recently published say that we've gone down from 30% of people getting their result within 24 hours to now 15% of people getting their result within 24 hours. So if you're waiting two or three days after your test and you already took a couple of days to get the test, then you've, you've missed most of that opportunity to, um, to, to stop the spread. And, and lots of people just aren't going to self-isolate until they know they've got it. I know this Liverpool test is, is meant to be getting results much more quickly, but we've really, there's been a real problem with the efficiency of getting results out to people. And I think that's, that's added to why the test and trace just hasn't had the impact it should have had. Uh, yeah, we've got a piece um, in the BMJ this week from Bing Jones and colleagues, um, which really makes that the point that why aren't we more angry about the failures of test and trace in the UK? Um, you know, why are we being, they say we're just being too polite about it. We ought to be out on the streets um, just saying this is just not good enough, the privatisation, the complete incompetence. The, I mean, this isn't to talk about the people working within the system. We're clearly working incredibly hard to deliver it. But the system itself is just not not up to up to the mark and has lacked leadership. 
Uh, what do you think, Alison, um, you know, in your position as at the very end of the, the process, if you like, on intensive care, people there who, who needn't have got to that stage if we'd had a better system? Are you very angry or am I putting words into your mouth? Well, it's it's frustrating because obviously when when test and trace first became apparent, it was seen as the as the cure all in terms of this would get us, get us out of the situation that that we were in, and it it would be fantastic if if we were if it all worked perfectly, um, we reduced transmission and critical care units across the country weren't you know either already overwhelmed or, or becoming, but I think. You know, standing up and and ranting about how it's not worked doesn't actually achieve anything. And and so I think it's almost an acceptance that we don't live in an ideal world. Um, Let's just get on and do what we can do to have the biggest impact. And and that might seem like, you know, just lying down and being walked all over. But there's only so much that some individuals or groups of individuals, healthcare professionals can do. Um, And it would have been brilliant, but we're not we haven't got it it's not working as as it should do so you know what what's the point really in in doing anything else helen uh, uh, i i do get your what's the point of being angry but i am very angry i'm angry about the cronyism at the heart of our government that has led to people without the appropriate qualifications being put in leadership positions of leading stuff which is Life or death to lots and lots of people. There have been excess deaths because the system's been run really badly. And possibly one of the reasons it's been run really badly is that the wrong people have been given power and leadership to do things that they do not have the expertise to do. Um, so so I, I, I am angry. Uh, whether my anger serves any purpose, I don't know. But I am really very angry because... It's been jobs for the for the girls and for people with contacts. Never mind the whole PPE bit, which is another another thing. But yeah, I'm cross. Ms. Rain. Yeah, I mean, I think we just just maybe reinforcing my earlier point is that the test and what Mugay said about the test not being an intervention. The whole it, it's a complex intervention. What we're talking about is a very complex intervention. It's not a simple technological intervention, and we need to. Um, shift the incentives for the whole package, which is, you know, find, test, trace, isolate, support, um, shift it. The incentive needs to shift from positive. The incentive needs to be clearly positive for people. So if I'm a single mum with three children um, and I uh, have to go to work uh, to provide for my children and I've got a bit of cough, um, that means I have to stop working. I have to um, find a test. I have to put, pull my, all of my children from school. They all have to lose their education. And also I have to care for them now because now they're all at, in, at home. Um, what's the incentive for me to do it? You know, there's no incentive. All the incentives are completely negative. I'm going to, you know, probably try and get on with it and hope the cough goes away. And that is exactly what Mugu is talking about. So that's the pre, maybe the, a bit of pre-symptomatic, early symptomatic period where people are most infectious. And then it maybe if I get sicker and in a couple of days, I'll be like, well, now, no, now I really have to get a test, but you know, other people got infected. How do we shift, you know, as a, as a person with that, you know, with that um, situation, how can we make this a positive experience for me and for my family um, so that I very quickly get the test, um, you know, get the result, 
um, get make sure my children continue their education even though at home make sure I've got enough income make sure I've got support people somebody's bringing me shopping to feed my children <laughs> but you see all of those things you say, Nizreen, I absolutely agree with, and, and that surely speaks to poor leadership and poor decisions, as, as, as Helen said. And I have, I have read Helen's column this week, um, which others will do shortly, uh, which expresses exactly <laughs> the anger at poor decisions and poor leadership. Uh, so everything you've said, we'd all love, wouldn't we? But it's not there, and I, you know, I, I, I am angry about that too. Uh, Muga, what, what do you feel about all this from your position as a virologist and also in Scotland where perhaps better decisions are being made? So, I mean, I agree with the discussions. I think since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been um, a lot of emphasis on testing as if, you know, that's the only thing that will basically save us. And there's been a lot of comparison between Western countries and South East Asian countries. But as, you know, Nisreen suggested, you know, um, we need to basically provide support for people to self-isolate. I mean, one of the things that Southeast Asian countries did really well is to support the citizens to, you know, for it, to enable them to self-isolate, even providing, you know, uh, weekly shopping and providing uh, support uh, overall, even like providing housing. Uh, you know, they have hospitals to self-isolate people because, I mean, when we look at the transmission dynamics, what we know is that, you know, uh, there's efficient spread within the household. We're seeing this in Western countries. In, in Scotland, majority of people are being infected within the household. Um, and uh, I think same, similar kind of um, contact tracing data is coming from other countries. So there are certain things that we could do, you know, if there's um, limited space in the household where people are going to self-isolate. I mean, there's one uh, study from France. They showed that people living in overcrowded housing, that's less than 18 square meters per person, were 2.5 times more likely to have tested positive. Um, so, I mean, I guess like I feel that COVID is a pandemic marked by its heterogeneity in risk of infection and our pandemic response is just homogeneous. And I mean, I guess like there's emerging data to suggest the ability to practice social distancing are strongly differentiated by region, household income. Uh, people facing greatest socioeconomic deprivation experience elevated risk of household and occupational risk. We know that. Um, I mean, when we look at, you know, housing in the UK, um, those living in socioeconomically deprived areas are more likely to be living in overcrowded housing. So I guess like we need to align testing with our lived realities uh, of those who most need testing. Uh, I think there's so much emphasis on personal responsibilities, which might direct us away from the main issues. So I think um, tackling these inequalities, uh, I mean, requires these, you know, uh, test trace services to be aligned with, uh, you know, living realities of the society. Um, and I guess like we may need to do much more emphasis on isolation. Uh, you know, as Helen suggested, at the moment, many people seek testing two, three days into symptoms and don't self-isolate until they get the test result, by which time they already passed the most infectious time period. 
Um, and we know that people are most infectious in the first week of after symptom onset. So I guess like um, there's a lot of thinking <laughs> is required how best we can you know, make this more relevant for the society and address the needs at the same time. Thanks, Muge. Can I ask you about the point that, that Alison made earlier about testing of, of medical staff? And um, Nizreen, you, you've mentioned in the chat that Belgium is asking, pos uh, asking test positive doctors to work and treat COVID patients. Um, I wondered, um, Alison, you know, just your thoughts on that. And then perhaps Muge could give us a view on, you know, why are we not doing more testing of, of uh, medical staff? So, so my my first thought when I, I heard that was, you know, why why would you have doctors or healthcare workers who are positive treating COVID patients, and then you and then you think, well, if they've already got it or they're already positive, and they're treating positive patients, what's the problem? But then we don't we don't know enough about the virus to say when well, we know that people can get it again, and so does it matter how long since since you were positive that you're treat you're treating positive patients i mean i i think that is just dreadful um and and positive healthcare workers should be treated the same as, as everybody else because again if they're positive they're not just going to come into contact with positive patients they're going to come into contact with um members of the public their own co-workers i mean <laughs> I mean, I, I am speechless. <laughs> I get, we can hear your speeches. They're not doing it based on scientific basis. It's purely based on capacity basis. They're just so desperate that they're doing that. And we, that's what we're trying to prevent, isn't it? Yeah. And that, yeah. That, I mean, that, that is just awful, isn't it? Isn't it? And it, it's, it's putting so many people at risk. Um, it, ne it needs to be managed very, very differently. I'm, I'm glad I'm not working in Belgium <laughs> or living in Belgium. I think they would just try to balance risks and the risk of having no nurse at all or no doctor at all for many patients was probably worse than the risk of having a COVID positive doctor or patient. And then you're actually weighing up the risk to your staff and the risk to your patients. And it, I, I really wouldn't want to be having to make those decisions myself. And it's a kind of how do we, how do we prevent ourselves from being where Liège was last week? Um, and I think that that's that's a that's a really important question. And I'm I'm not convinced that anyone with the hands on the levers of control has any control at all or has any vision about how we stop that that happening. No, that's it. I'm very, very uh, I think your your view will be shared by many. Muge, what's your sense about this, the sort of virological background to that Belgian decision, given that it's probably based on. On, on urgency of need rather than science, but even so, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. Uh, it's the first time I've heard about this Belgium decision, to be honest. Um, so I don't know the basis of the decision, but I think my main kind of concern for this would be staff-to-staff uh, -staff transmission. Um, because um, I guess like contrary to, contrary to what's often taught and scared, uh, the data suggests that the risk of patient-to-doctor transmission is rare. And uh, in a way, this pattern is unsurprising because, you know, what's known about the timing of infectiousness, peaking around the time of symptom onset, most patients, when they come to hospital, they're already past that, you know, high infectious time period. 
but we are seeing other kind of um, studies from the US showing that majority of stuff-to-stuff transmission occurs in um, unmasked spaces like break rooms uh, or doctor's rooms. And when we look at majority of doctor's rooms in the UK, they have no windows. Often they're really small. Uh, and majority of doctors are basically working in the same environment. And most of the time, we basically take off our mask, you know, because you can't really keep the mask on all day long. And it's sometimes really, you know, difficult. I think in a way, what's clear is that the hospital-based outbreaks reported in other countries, it doesn't show major vulnerabilities in the system, but in a way, like it shows staff potentially have not been adequately supported and how we can reduce stuff-to-stuff transmission. I think that would be my main concern because, you know, breakdowns have occurred in small workrooms during mealtime in facilities. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that many healthcare, uh, you know, system uh, prevented, tran- tried to prevent transmission from patients, but then, you know, what is the re- residual transmission risk uh, among staff? And what we can do about that, you know, can we provide adequate, well-ventilated, uh, dedicated sp- uh, space for healthcare workers? Uh, can we provide maybe staggered uh, break time to minimize contact? Uh, so I guess the the main concern with the Belgium, you know, um, decision would be what is the risk to the other stuff than potentially to the patients. I think uh, there are also recent outbreaks in hospital settings, but it may be to do with the, you know, infections brought in by patients coming in with another cause, you know, with another diagnosis, um, not really knowing, you know, they have COVID-19. It may be that they're basically in the incubation period. And, you know, at the moment, the majority of hospitals have open, uh, you know, open space, uh, wards, so that's also a big downside of our system because in the in the US, I think majority of hospitals have single room facilities, much more uh, than we do in the UK. Thanks, Muget. Uh, we've got a, a, another piece in the BMJ coming up uh, this week by Nick Scriven, who's the immediate past president of the Society of Acute Medicine, and he's really just making the point that um, the, the, you know, the risk of um, patient, patients um, nosocomial infection. Um, infection when you come into hospital with overcrowding due to other winter pressures you know that that's going to be a a, a real risk that we might well have nosocomial outbreaks um, because of corridor people in corridors and all the all the things we know happen um, in in hospitals during winter. Alison how how big a risk do you see that as, as the pressures mount in the next weeks? I think it's different in obviously in different parts of the country in different parts of the hospitals because it depends on what your footprint looks like and we know um, emergency departments are being overcrowded ambulances are having to wait outside because they can't bring patients in because of the overcrowding um what I do know is that all patients who are going to be who who are in hospital either in the ED department or coming via other sources are are tested so it's not like you you'd you know you'd have patients who who you don't know what their um status is um so so that patients will be rapidly tested in in emergency departments and they get a very quick turnaround of, of their results 
and if there are patients on on wards then certainly for intensive care we, we would admit a patient to a side room while we were waiting for the result and then depending on that result would govern where, where they go but I, I do i do think the overcrowding is an issue um nosocomial infection is a problem and in you know we have to work out how to deal with it in in the best possible way where everyone's got their own responsibility and it's so difficult to to manage it all you know we're, we're talking about the healthcare system at the moment and how we can um avoid or reduce transmission but of course you've then got the other side which is the economy you know and nobody who, who's interested in economy and business and everything else wants the lockdown so whatever you do there's people not going to be happy and we, we have we have to to balance things um and i i'm just glad that i'm not responsible for me making those overall decisions Mugi, what do you feel is the the risk to patients in a hospital from from catching the the disease and how could we handle that so I think uh, we need to understand the viral load dynamics of SARS-CoV-2 and we have much more better understanding now. Um, early, in, early in the infection, a person who's incubating the virus uh, could test negative. Um, so there's a study published by researchers from John Hopkins that showed that almost 40% uh, of uh, patients could you know, um, test negative on the day of symptom onset. So no test is going to find the virus so early. Uh, and I guess like if we are testing um, patients at the time of hospitalization, they may need to be tested again in a couple of days time to make sure that it was not uh, somebody who was in the incubation period and we missed it. Because I guess um, uh, the studies and majority of uh, you know, virology studies are showing that the best answer, uh, if we want to test someone, we should be testing them at day three of symptoms. Um, so that's approximately eight days after exposure. Uh, but, you know, no, no test is going to give us 100% um, positivity at any time point. Thanks, Muge. How does that play out in hospital, Alison? So what, what happens is that all patients are tested on admission, <clears throat> irrespective of, of what symptoms they, they have got. And then initially, it depends on the community prevalence. But as the prevalence has been increasing, there's been um, an increasing frequency of, of routine testing of in, inpatients. So at the moment, patients are being retested between three and five days post-admission, irrespective of whether they've got symptoms and irrespective of what their admission test was. So it means that if we have a patient admitted on day one who was negative who didn't have symptoms then they will be tested again to see whether they need to be uh, isolated or, or cohorted so that, that is sort of protective in in some ways and that that has been a change recently that reflects the increasing prevalence and, and transmission in the community. Thanks we talked before about this sort of false dichotomy between the economy and you know the, the health versus wealth thing um, and realising I think those of us on this call have realised that, that, that there isn't a choice that we have to control COVID in order to um, get the economy back on. But Nidreen, you've, you've been at the, the sharp end of this with your John Snow memorandum. 
and 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 you know finding yourself being called a lockdowner as a result of that how, how has that felt from your end yeah i think that also links to your point and helen's point and you know about frustration about what's happening so what can we do um you know people who who effectively have no power you know we speak up we you know say what we think we talked about transparency last time about the science and um um, um last you know when we did this last week um but i think it's 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 becoming the debate is becoming so charged not even a debate you know if you say anything towards effective effective control effective suppression of the virus if you highlight the difficulties in hospital and the capacity even if you highlight like i've been doing constantly you know uh, long covid and morbidity uh, from covid 19 um there is a tendency that this is seen as your pro lockdown um you know and 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 and, and obviously and there's no nuance um and, and i'm not just talking about social media i think in general even with the public even in conversations people are so tired they're so stressed they're so anxious that that nuance is, is lost and and you and, and the main conversation becomes the lockdown rather than what else can we do for effective suppression um of the virus um, and i think we need to maybe you know me as a public health professionals uh, is really the communication bit because we need that effective communication for the next stage, which is the vaccine. Mm. We need that public trust. And so we really need to think about how we're communicating, um, you know, public health and science and how we reach people uh, without, um, you, we need to revisit the communication bit, you know, whether we're in power or we're not, you know, we're just experts trying to express our opinion. Uh, because we really need that trust and effective communication for the vaccine delivery stage. Which, which is a very good segue onto discussion about the vaccine. This week has seen the announcement from Pfizer in a press release that its vaccine uh, can protect uh, 90% of people against COVID-19 based on the first 94 volunteers who tested positive or became ill with covid I'd really be interested in your views, uh, beginning with you, Muge, uh, about that announcement and what you think it tells us about the likelihood of a vaccine in the next few months. I mean, I think this is, I mean, fantastic news, uh, but obviously we haven't seen the full data, especially the safety data. Um, so the vaccine trials uh, typically focus on the primary endpoint of virologically confirmed symptomatic disease. So to, this captures the direct benefit of the vaccine. So these results were based on interim analysis uh, of 94 confirmed cases out of approximately 40,000 participants who received two doses of the vaccine. So um, it seems like according to these early results, number needed to vaccinate to prevent one symptomatic case is approximately 250 cases. Um, I guess like one point is that because the primary endpoint is symptomatic infection, this study was not looking at asymptomatic infection. Um, nevertheless, I think preventing symptomatic infection in high risk group, especially in elderly, those with comorbidities would be fantastic. But I still would like to see how well this vaccine prevents severe disease, uh, how this uh, vaccine prevents infection, uh, how it's going to work in different uh, age groups. But I guess like overall, I'm quite hopeful what's going to roll out in the next couple of months with other vaccines, because we definitely need more than 
one vaccine to meet the demand, um, and especially including vaccines that could be delivered to resource uh, limited settings. Um, so yeah, I'm quite hopeful overall, and this is this would be the first mRNA based vaccine if it's uh, approved. You know, it's uh, it basically encodes a viral antigen, and it's very different different than traditional vaccine approaches. And unlike attenuated um, vaccines, uh, it doesn't carry risk associated with infection, and it could be given to uh, you know risk. Um, risk, you know, high risk uh, group like pregnant women or immunocompromised persons. So it's um, it has a lot of benefits. Thanks, Muge. Uh, uh, the, the, one of the concerns I think was um, who was actually involved in the trials. These were healthy volunteers. Did, did these trials include those at high risk? Helen, you, 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 I know, had some concerns about that. I was just interested um, whether, obviously, the people that we know um, are bearing the, the burden of, of severe illness and death are, are the are older patients um, and patients who are otherwise not healthy or, or have conditions. They may be healthy in lots of other ways, but have underlying conditions. I'd just be interested to know whether any of the people within this trial were over 65, whether any of them had pre-existing conditions and, and do we have a good sense of whether it may work as well in the most vulnerable groups. Mugu, do we know these things? So according to the protocol, it was not really um, uh, clarified in the press release yesterday, but this um, study has three age groups. One is um, basically um, 18 to 55. They also recruited in a group more than 55 as well. So they're, they're probably going to do, you know, stratified analysis based on age. This is my understanding. But it it's really depends on the events uh, that they've seen, because this is uh, the end point is event driven endpoint. So they've only seen 94 cases of COVID-19. So we don't actually have any detail about which age group these cases have been seen and whether they could give us any, you know, clarification about the, uh, you know, different age groups, the prevention and in terms of severity of illness. So I think we still need to wait for the full results. And in terms of the uh, safety of the vaccine, uh, half of the patients in the study uh, need to be observed uh, for at least two months following the second dose. So realistically, these findings you know, will not be available until early next year. Um, and I think it's not going to make any immediate difference in our lives, probably until next summer. Yes, which, which does beg the question of why it was announced, you know, an interim analysis was necessary apart from to boost the stock price of the vaccine. I mean, I don't mean to be utterly cynical, but it seems a very strange decision when, you know, a few weeks time, they could have given us the results on the remaining people who've, who've, who've um, been tested positive. Uh, and uh, Peter Doshi's written two pieces in the BMJ in the last few weeks about the problem of the vaccine trials, what they can't tell us about um, the severity of the illness, um, whether the virus, whether the vaccine stops viral shedding and what the duration of protection will be. And also just simply the the size of the trials being, you know, too small really to show endpoints such as severe illness and death, um, which is what people think the vaccine will protect against. So 
those are just a few concerns. Uh, Nizreen, what about the actual practicalities of delivering the vaccine? Uh, as you've said, that vaccine confidence is going to be a huge problem. But what about the other practicalities? So absolutely, you know, confidence about safety primarily of the vaccine that needs to be, you know, top of the list. So I think we people have been talking about prioritization, which groups to get it first, but less so about um, about the logistics, uh, you know, the delivery, uh, how it will be delivered, you know, the storage, there are issues about uh, the, the storage. And is, the main question is, um, uh, with the good news that we heard, you know, potentially good news that we heard yesterday, it, 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 the question is, is the system in place? Is the system ready to receive an effective and safe vaccine and deliver it as quickly as possible? Um, we've seen um, there are issues with flu vaccine, with established with established pathways of delivery and everything. This year, people were some people were struggling to get the flu vaccine. So, um, where are where, you know we need the plans for the delivery? And perhaps Helen might say a bit more about that. Uh, yes, they were <laughs> published last night. Um, very quick off the mark, um, the details of a, a DES, a direct enhanced service, so a, a, bit of, a bit of GP contract that you could sign up to, actually designed to go to these public um, you know, primary care networks rather than individual practices. And I think anyone who's involved in that world there, WhatsApp groups have been pinging madly all night because what's being produced, unfortunately, doesn't look very workable. So what's been suggested is to sign up to be a practice that delivers this vaccine. You have to be prepared to be open from 8am to 8pm, seven days a week, okay, to deliver a minimum of 975 doses of vaccine in that week, um, and to observe each patient who is vaccinated for 15 minutes after their vaccination. And there's a, a, a price tag of about £12.40, I think it is, per, per vaccination. Most GPs are saying, well, we really, really, really want to be involved. But actually, we don't have the space, unless we stop doing everything else we're doing in primary care, we can't quite work out how, how we could possibly do this. And on that money, how we could afford the extra receptionists and nursing staff and medical staff and everyone to, to do it. We, it just doesn't look doable and actually can we can we get staff to work seven days a week um, 12 hours a day the, the original contract it, from from a first reading it's difficult to see why anyone ever thought that was a goer uh, and there's a tiny cynical bit in my mind of saying did they decide to make it so impossible only the private sector would sign up to it uh, sorry that's 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 my cynicism on the plus side, I hear that already at a slightly higher level, our CCG is thinking, okay, it, it, the primary care networks or the individual practices may not be able to do it, but, but maybe we can work collaboratively and get some big venues where we can do some mass vaccination and still keep it within the, the local NHS structure. So I'm sure it will be able to happen, but the, the stuff that's being produced really very quickly to say, okay, this is what has to happen doesn't look very workable at the moment uh, and, and there's all sorts of issues about the need to store this vaccine at minus 80 and and how you actually do that and I don't know what the, the then the shelf life at fridge temperature or then room temperature is there, there's so many unknowns but we haven't got off the starting block in a very um, hopeful way at the moment. 
I guess that a, a priority group for vaccination when we have a safe and effective vaccine will be um, medical staff and, and certainly, Alison, people treating um, the sickest patients in hospitals. Is that what you've been told and is that what you'd expect? Yeah, my, my understanding is obviously that, that they've got to work out who who to target first. And I think it's it's obviously going to be uh, the vulnerable in, in social care um, and staff in, in social care. Um, now, wh whether frontline healthcare workers will be involved in that first wave or whether it's the sort of um, people in, in nursing homes, etc., first and then we're in the second tier, I, I don't know. But I think the, the important thing is because we've seen the impact of frontline healthcare workers having to go off sick, and that then having a negative impact on the way we can deliver care means that if we can stop that, then that has a, a sort of a, um, a double effect in that we keep the staff there and we can deliver care to COVID and, and non-COVID patients. So I, I think frontline healthcare workers, but again, how are they going to decide who that is? Is it just the doctors and nurses on a ward? Or is it porters? I mean, we know there was an outbreak um, in sort of a, towards the end of the first wave that was linked to porters in a hospital. They are patient facing, um, but are they classed as frontline healthcare workers? So how are they going to define that? That's, that's one of my concerns. The devil is going to be in the detail. The other big news this week has been the victory for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the US election. And I wondered if I could just ask each of you uh, whether you feel this will really see a shift in our approach to COVID-19. Nizreen. I want to say first, even outside of COVID-19, that as a first generation ethnic minority woman in the UK, I'm delighted because I've seen a shift over the last few years it, on a personal level um, as well as population level in basically the level of overt racism um, and I am I'm, I'm really hopeful that this would now at least stop or uh, is reversed um, so I think the election you know would af affect people worldwide not only in the US people from ethnic minority people who are migrants um, were getting very concerned um, in, including me, so that's personal feeling for the for the for their children. That's generally for the COVID response from a public health response. Also very optimistic uh, because uh, again, if we see a really good response in the United States, um, then other countries we hope would follow um, in terms of control of uh, effective suppression and control of COVID nineteen. Thank you, Helen. I mean, obviously, I'm deeply deeply relieved because we now have somebody who's going to be in the White House who. I think is pro-science and pro-expert and will listen and also I think will be brave enough because he's not a populist he's going to be brave enough to take decisions that might be unpopular in terms of um, what people see as restrictions to their freedoms because he can take the advice and listen to the science and know what's necessary and needed to protect um, the population of America and that's that's fantastic and on another reason that I'm a bit optimistic is that there are lots of concerns about the possibility of a trade deal with the US having a negative impact on 
our health service on keeping it in public hands and on pharmaceutical pricing and on various other aspects of our health service which could be threatened by a trade deal. And I think that a negative trade deal for us is less likely, certainly until the government has sorted out the, the, the Brexit mess um, and the threats to the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, it's huge, but mostly I'm really happy. Thank you. Alison. Yes, I mean, I echo what Nazreen and, and Helen have said. Um, it's been really frustrating when in, in the UK we've been trying to get the public on our side and to help us um, deliver care to everyone that needs it. And, and when, when you see a, a world leader like the President of, of the United States flouting the science and almost negating everything that we've been trying to do, it's really frustrating. Um, and you know, you, you, people don't see what's happening behind closed doors in, in hospitals and, and intensive care units around the country. And yes, there, have, there has been a media um, the image of that, but it, you know that is really real, and I I feel as an individual really positive about uh, Joe Biden because as Helen said, this seems to be somebody who respects the science, and I don't think will take advantage of his his position to gain a popular vote. He'll be doing things for the right reasons, so I'm very encouraged. Thanks, Alison Muge. And I also agree with what already has been said. And I think, uh, you know, for clinicians, academics, and also I'm kind of uh, quite active on social media as well. You know, we've been trying to deal with misinformation as well. And some of those misinformation was coming from some of the politicians. And I think um, this basically made our efforts quite difficult and challenging. And this also created a lot of uh, fear, um, you know, because one, when you say something, it is basically categorized as Trumpian or, you know, kind of supporting that uh, side of the debate. And I think that affects the nuanced discussion where we need to have healthy discussion to move forward. So, and also as Alison, uh, you know, uh, pointed out, it's about, you know, public trust. Uh, we basically all need to be talking from the same kind of compassion and solidarity. Uh, so we don't basically feed that division within that kind of uh, within the public. So I, I, I'm hopeful. Hopefully, we will see much more uh, politicians who are supporting scientific debate, uh, healthy scientific debate going forward. Well, thank you all. And um, so, so in this highly selective group, no one is speaking up for Donald Trump. And um, in, in the interest of balance, I won't either. <laughs> uh, thank you very much indeed to you all. Uh, thanks to Nizreen Alwan, Helen Salisbury, Alison Pittard and Mugo Chevik. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to our listeners. So do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. We'll be coming back weekly with these second wave podcasts. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Fee Godley, and I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>